building something that people will use. Okay, welcome back to the Marketing Playbook, presented by Details Interactive. Here you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number 25, and today's guest is Rodney Woodruff. Before we get started, a quick thank you, as always, to Max Brandstetter of the Wow Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at maxpodcasting.com to help bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready, break. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the Marketing Playbook Podcast. Today, I'm joined by my friend Rodney Woodruff, who is the VP Engineering at WW, formerly called Weight Watchers. Rodney and I worked together at Steve Madden, and as my technology partner, Rodney was instrumental in helping us grow the online business and supporting the store network. Welcome, Rodney, to the show. Hey, Mark. Well, I'm really glad that we had a chance to, uh, to do this. It's been a long time coming. You and I had actually talked about doing our own podcast together a, a while back, if you remember. I definitely remember that. I think I, at the time, I thought it would be awesome, especially because of the way we interact. I th- thought it would be a hilarious and fun um, podcast. Yeah, well, well, we'll have to use this as, uh, as our opportunity. So um, we are recording this uh, towards the end of October uh, 2020. Uh, you know, we're still in the pandemic. Uh, how are you and your family doing? You know, we're doing well. I mean, we're fortunate enough to have a house that's big enough to keep us all separated from each other. And there's a lot of, uh, a lot of you, right? Yeah, there are. There's it's my wife and I have uh, three daughters. And so everybody has their own space and we're all doing, well, we were all, two of them are still doing school from home, but one is back in school in person. Okay. Well, I'm glad that you're well. Um, I like to start these, uh, these podcasts with giving the audience some perspective on uh, the guests, you know, kind of growing up, you know, we, we call it this, you know, their first story. And oftentimes you find that, you know, people's first stories really uh, give some, um, kind of future perspective in what they're going to do in their career, in their life. Part of the reason why I wanted you know, our audience to hear from you is you have a really interesting early first story. So maybe tell us a little bit about it and we'll go from there. Well, um, I'm originally from Chicago, south side of Chicago, born and raised. Um, also went to college about an hour north of Chicago. So really spent the formative years of my life in Chicago. Um, I am one of 15, one of 16 children. I have- See, uh, even you can't remember how many. <laughs> I, I keep forgetting to count myself. So <laughs> I, have, I have four older siblings and 11 younger siblings, and it's almost evenly split. Um, if you would count me as nine boys and seven girls. Uh, really, really large family. My mom had six children, including me, and then my dad married my stepmom. She had one son, and then they had nine more. And then the year I got married, my mother adopted my little brother, who was about nine months old, um, when the year I got married. So that's how we ended up. We were a solid 15. And then um, my little brother came along and was adopted. So made us a solid 16. It's a really large family. Uh, I don't know what it's like to be in a space where there's a 
quiet. It's, it's very, it makes for a very interesting upbringing. And, and that probably had to do with why you, like I, like to talk, uh, because there was just so many people around. You must all, always have been talking. I, I, I was always talking, but I also called my oldest sister, because there are quite a number of years between us, so she would remember me as a child, and I asked her a bunch of questions of what I was like as a child, and she said two things. She said, I was, I was always curious. I always talked and I would always laugh at everything, even when it wasn't appropriate. So, so I, I come from a family where talking was important. And, and how do you think, you know, as I know you in your professional life, you are an extraordinarily positive guy, um, perhaps almost to a fault in the sense that, you know, everything is achievable, everything is doable, um, even if in reality, it may not be quite as, as achievable as, as it you know, you might lead on. But do, do you think that, you know, that upbringing with so many people involved and some of the challenges, you know, the, the age range and, and perhaps the role you had to play in your family, did that help you, you know, as you got older and, and moved into a professional life? It's interesting, right? Because we always talk about diversity and inclusion. That's like been the big topic these days. And so what I would say is that, yes, my experiences. Growing up, because we grew up largely poor, and so there was always a way to solve a problem, right? Um, Whatever the problem may be, whether it be hunger, clothing, shelter, and I experienced all of those, but there was always a solution to those things, whether it was depending upon the kindness of friends, food pantries, where we would wait in line to um, get meals and things like that, there was always a solution. And so I have been through so many different challenges in my life that I always believe that there is a solution to almost any problem. I think you alluded to me always being super positive. One thing that I realized is that sometimes I still think everything's doable, but I now understand that it's only doable if you have the resources that you need in order to be able to pull them off. So prioritization becomes this major, major thing. And I think that's true when you're a feast or famine, that prioritization, what's the most important thing right now, um, becomes part of that. And then how do you set yourself up for success when the sort of trauma or challenge has passed? And so, yeah, absolutely. My upbringing keeps me in the mindset. I've always said to a number of people, depending on the company I was working for, hey, we, we're selling clothes. We're not solving world hunger, right? Um, and so people would get super stressed. And my mind was always like, this is a solvable problem. We're going to be okay. Positive attitude. That's Rodney. So you, you mentioned, you know, kids, uh, three kids and, and your wife. Take us back to, you know, you, you had the, f- the big family. Um, you wind up at University of Michigan. So what was that like for you going to Michigan? So I, you know, I went to undergrad at a small liberal arts school in Illinois called Lake Forest College. It's about an hour north of Chicago. And when I was leaving, one thing I've always been able to determine about myself is what I was ready for next. Like, what was the next thing for me? I could always tell you if I was ready for the real world, I'm ready for a job or I'm ready for whatever was next. And when I finished graduate school, my degree was chemistry because chemistry was my first love. I mean, it was... I, I remember being in first grade, I was six years old. I remember where the classroom was and some professional person came in from a laboratory and they were wearing a lab coat and they did this conversation about plastics and polymers. And I was sitting in the front row and that was my love. So I fell in love with chemistry six years old, that was it. 
I, I was off to the races. And so everything I did that was a passion of mine had something to do with some chemistry related things. So that's what I studied all the way through undergrad. And then when I went to graduate school, I went to University of Michigan because I was like, I'm not ready to get a job yet. I don't really want to get stuck in a lab. What do I want to do next? I thought like, man, I, would, I wanted to inspire kids to have the same love of chemistry that I had when I was six years old. So I thought I'll get a master's degree in education and I'll teach high school chemistry. When I got to Michigan, that's where I met my girlfriend, who is now my wife. Um, she was in uh, graduate school for public policy. And then I finished graduate school and I was in Michigan itself, obviously, is this world, because that, that's your question. Michigan itself is this amazing world of just like school spirit and um, fight songs and just culture. And so it was so easy to get wrapped up in there. So many resources, so much opportunity, so much cross-pollination and collaboration. So my experience in Michigan was just that. It was everything you would hope that your child would get when they went off to college in terms of like trying to figure out who they wanted to be in life and all the things that went along with that. It was, it was fantastic. Still love it. I'm wearing a Michigan hat right now. And, and you wanted to be a teacher, yeah? I wanted to teach high school chemistry. And then when I finished my program, it was sort of like at this confluence of events of where teachers were losing the sort of heroic um, persona that belonged to them that I felt they deserved. And I became very disillusioned with public education at that point and decided uh, my wife convinced me to take one of those tests, like what would you be good at <laughs> kind of test. And I took one of those tests and it said computer programming. And I had started doing computer programming when I was eight years old. My mother uh, made every parent teacher conference and one parent teacher conference, the teacher said to her when I was eight years old, we think your son is smart. We're doing this. We're trying to introduce young children to computers, computers and computer programming. And we think your son should be in the program. And so my mother enrolled me in this program over the summer that I turned nine. So I started when I was eight, finished when I was nine. And for three months, I just wrote software as an eight-year-old. That's how I became exposed to that. And then my odd jobs from the time I was about 17 to the time I was about 21, 22 were all related to this other niche of mine, which was computer programming and computer technology. And so my wife told me to take this test. They said computer programming. And then that also happened to be at the same time the internet was taken off and the rest is, shall we say, history. Yeah, that's amazing. And and so as um, you know, you had uh, a job early in your career, but the one that you know really kind of seems like it got you started in in web and and digital commerce uh, was this role at Fry Interactive. So this is an early two thousand, very early web. Um, tell us about that business and your role in building that out. So right. So just prior to that, my very first software job was for writing software for Campbell Ewald. Um, that they, they were part of the, they are part of the interpublic group. And I wrote software that scheduled all radio and television commercials for the contiguous United States. So the 48 connected states. And so my software, so whenever you would buy airtime, our system was, the, my system was the one that would either like fax the agencies or fax the stations or whatever and schedule those. And then from there, I got married and a bunch of men in my church were like, you're driving 50 miles one way every day. You just got married. 
you probably want to at least have a year of quality time with your wife before you start taking on these challenging job assignments. So I, I applied for a job at Fry and Fry was a e-commerce startup and they were, it, they were hustle and bustle and it was such an exciting time. Within one week of starting the job, I was on a plane to 1-800-Flowers. Uh, I started there on January 31st and within that first week, I'm at 1-800-Flowers working on the Valentine's flower, <laughs> flower Day, right? Which has gotta be one of the largest days ever for 1-800-Flowers. And this is my intro into e-commerce, e-commerce software development and technology. And it was just amazing because we built so many brands, so many platforms um, there. It was just amazing. And I think we'll talk about that a little bit later, but um, one of those platforms is a pretty popular and famous platform um, that Oracle acquired later, later on in life. Yeah. yeah, I'm not sure we're going to talk about that one <laughs> <laughs> for, for obvious reasons, but you can talk about it if you want. No, I mean, but it was, it was just, if you're a software engineer, one of the very first things you want to do is build something that adds value and lasts. And I think we were able to do that. And I, I'm just really excited about what we were able to accomplish with that platform. Right. Rodney's referring to a, uh, a company called Micros, which bought the Fry Interactive uh, e-commerce platform. And then Micros was uh, later, uh, I don't know, four or five years ago, uh, acquired by Oracle. Um, and this is, you know, kind of in the, as businesses started moving um, technology into the cloud. Uh, but uh, Rodney and I worked together, uh, obviously, um, and, and the Micros platform was was one that we well, I guess we'll have to say we chose together, Rodney. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so post-Fry, you do a stop at, at Ziff Davis, um, you know, and then you move to, I, I guess, which is your first retailer, Gucci. So talk about that. You know, it, Gucci is, you know, an animal unto itself, you know, high-end luxury. What was it like from the, the perspective of being a technology guy, being brought in to help commerce where you have a business that's so heavily focused on their brand. Yeah, I mean, the, the Gucci experience was a great experience because I joined at a time where luxury retailers were kind of skeptical of this whole e-commerce internet thing. Now, Gucci definitely had um, an e-commerce site at the time. I think the way I would describe it, it was a, a must-have kind of thing. Like, you needed to be playing in the space even if you didn't believe in the space, like it didn't make sense to be a brand of its size and not have e-commerce um, at the time. So when they brought me in, the expectation was that they were gonna to start to invest more heavily in this whole world of e-commerce. So they brought me in as chief e-business architect. So I owned e-commerce and I owned order management, e-commerce, um, delivery, warehousing, all of that platforming technology globally in all their markets and we expanded into other markets along um, during my tenure and so as far as what it was like it's amazing to see what people value and gucci really believed in this brand and i can safely say that i definitely believed in gucci as well because i felt like as far as what they put on the label was really what went into the product and that's what really inspired me about working for that brand it was just amazing. And when I started, it was the expectation was, hey, Rodney, we're going to be the premier destination for 
luxury e-commerce. And then we just had a little side, got a little sidetracked because we had to do an emergency replacement of our order management platform. And that took several months to get done. But as soon as that was done, we went full speed ahead into the e-commerce development. And it was just an amazing experience, which we can talk more about, but I definitely want to give you that answer there. Yep. That's great. You know, one of the, the things I always found somewhat unique about you was your ability to kind of take a technology uh, discussion and bring it into a point where a marketer, a, a non-technologist could understand it. Talk a little bit about that and, and how you, you tackled dealing with people like me who were not technologists and more marketing and business. My, my goal is to build technology people want to use, Right. So you ask how I got to Gucci and between Ziff Davis and Gucci was a small was a reinsurance firm that I joined. And I remember as I was walking to work, cause it was really close to home. As I was walking to work, I said to my wife, I texted her and I, I said, Hey, what if I took a position in house at a retailer running their e-commerce business? Now I had no idea about any, any opportunities existing like that whatsoever. And I sit down at my desk at this reinsurance firm and my phone rings and I pick it up and the recruiter on the other side says, hey, my name is so-and-so, how would you like to be a director at a luxury retailer? And I'm like, what? And this literally like 10 minutes apart, I walk in the door, I sit down, phone rings. And then they finally told me that it was Gucci. And so at, when when, I am thinking about how to sort of communicate technology to people who are not technologists. It is literally with that kind of focus. It's the focus on building something that people will use, which means that I don't have to like dazzle people with acronyms and coding terminology, whatever. I can literally focus on what we're trying to get accomplished and that could be our common language. And then I can talk, and once we've sort of developed that common language, then I can talk about, okay, well, this is how the technology gets us there. So it's sort of like talking to someone who doesn't know how to read a map. You talk about where we're trying to go. We're trying to go from New York to California. And this is what we want to experience along our way to California. This is how we want it to work. This is how we want people to feel and those kind of things. Then we put out the map and I say, okay, here's where we are. Here's how we could possibly get there. And this is why this is the best route. And I've, I've found that Everybody that I've met, I always think that people are, that I always have something else to learn and that people are just as smart as I am. And my goal is to try to make sure we can have a common language for communication. So that's the approach. And I'm not trying to win you over because I'm not one of those technologists. I think this is the key piece is that I build trust with people because I'm not, I am a technologist who loves doing great things for a purpose. I don't have a desire to try out things simply because they're the cool new technology. I want to try out things that are going to help us to actually deliver against the goals that we have. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, it absolutely does. And, you know, kind of in the same vein of, of trying to talk to people that, you know, may not have the same level of, of expertise as, as you, how do you deal with people that have unreasonable expectations? I mean, there's many a time you would, you know, come to me and I would ask to see if we could, you know, execute on something. And you tell me it was going to take, you know, four weeks. Um, and I said, we need it in two. I, maybe I was being unreasonable. How do you deal with people like that? 
you know, is, that's that's one of those age-old challenges. Because so I, I, I'll answer this this way. Sometimes people ask me things like that, like where I go, like, hey, it's going to take. And we had an experience like this at um, Steve Madden that it, and it wasn't you who made the request. Right. It was leadership asking for us to integrate with Amazon. And my statement was, look, in the midst of everything else that we have, I don't see how we're going to get this done. And it became like this really major priority um, kind of thing. And so we got it done. And the reason why I bring that up is that the success sometimes is the poison, meaning that you tell people, hey, it's going to take this amount of time and this amount of effort in order to get this done. And then because it's such a high priority and you want to give people what they want, you sort of do it. So now what I do is I'm very realistic up front. Um, whereas before I used to always be like, we'll stay up all night and do whatever. Now I answer the question this way. Hey, you're asking me for this. Are these the things that you really want? What are the most important parts? Cause my goal is always to try to get you what you want. But the first thing I will do is clarify. So let's just be very directive. I'm going to clarify your request. Like, what are you really trying to get after? What's your reason for this? Uh, why are you trying to get this done? would some version of this work that is much more doable? And if it turns out that everything that you've asked for is everything that you need, then I'm gonna be realistic and say, hey, I don't think we can get this done with the resources we have and the projects we have. Maybe we can reprioritize some of these projects, but if it turns out we can't reprioritize, then we're kind of stuck in a situation where I'm just saying, hey, we can't get this done, which is not the norm for me. It's hard for me to say, we can't get this done. But once I've gotten to that place, I'm really serious about the fact that we can't get it done. So I really try to work with you, partner with you, and figure out if we can de-scope, if we can push it to later, or if we can add more resources. And if none of those things are possible, then we have to all just agree that um, we won't be able to get it done now. De-scope. I love de-scope. I, I think that's great. Talk about um, you know one of the other you know big aspects of of being a technologist and, and working in a business is you know do I build it or do I buy it? Um, how do you think about that? So this is a great question because it is one of the things. What I'll tell you is if it's core to the business, if it's core to who who what a company is. I typically want to build that. Like if it's something I need to pivot on or something that I think as a company we're going to be iterating on quite a bit, we're going to build that. But I'm not going to build an order management system. I'm not going to build an ERP system. I'm not going to build a workforce management system. I'm not going to build search engines or those kinds of tools that have already been iterated on. But if it's specific to the business that we are in, then I want to build that. But then you say, well, Rodney, isn't e-commerce an important part of the business that you're in? And so what I do on the e-commerce side, now I have built a custom e-commerce platform at Gucci that was 100% custom e-commerce platform specifically for that brand. But in other markets, I bought. But then what I look for in the e-commerce platform is what can we as engineers control about this platform that will make it so that we can meet the business objectives? And if that platform allows extension, plugins, more straightforward use of modern technologies, whether that be cascading style sheets or HTML5 or JavaScript, 
if it allows for those kinds of things, then it's the best of both worlds where I can build, where I can buy and have 85% of what we need out of the box and the other 15% can be really where we focus and add business value. So basically I would say it's two categories. Problems that have already been solved well, I wanna buy. Things that are germane or give us business um, competitive lead or meet our members' needs, that I'm gonna focus on customizing. The devil's in the details. You've probably heard that phrase time and time again in your professional life. Projects get started with great intentions, but you no longer have the time to pay attention to the little things that can make the difference between success and failure. At Details Interactive, you can discuss your business with a seasoned direct-to-consumer marketing executive who has helped launch and grow web businesses and integrate multi-channel marketing initiatives. Learn more at detailsinteractive.com. So you uh, you were at Gucci, um, good experience there, and you went, was it directly to Madden from Gucci? I went directly to Madden from Gucci, yep. So when you, you arrived at, at Madden, um, what kind of uh, experience was it for you? It was obviously the, the surroundings were different. Gucci, Steve Madden were very different, um, you know, kinds of markets that the customer, you know, um, focus was. So uh, what, what kind of a transition was that for you? At Gucci, man, I want to be fair. At Gucci, there were a good number of people who needed to give feedback before a decision was made, right? Um, because you were affecting the brand in all of these markets, not just in the U.S., right? So a change could impact everyone. At Steve Madden, um, the focus seemed to be on delivery, getting the work out, getting it done. Um, but in a less, I guess, at Steve Madden, I felt freer, right? At, at Gucci, I felt supported, right? And meaning that I always knew that if I needed to get something done at Gucci, I knew all the right people to talk to to be able to get things done. At Steve Madden, I felt like there was less structure than there was at Gucci. And I, I don't want to, I hate to juxtapose them because I absolutely, I was at Gucci for almost five years. I loved that place. I believed in that place. I lived, lived sleep, ate, and breathed in that place. So it was a, a spectacular experience. I did great work there. Um, I think we were able to do wonderful things. And then at Steve Madden, I thought I did really great work as well. But again, I felt like the type of structures that existed in a global, large global organization like Gucci didn't exist at Steve Madden, if that makes sense. Like not comparing and contrasting, but at Steve Madden, I sort of felt like once I sort of set that the world, would, like I could pretty much do anything um, yep. within reason. Talk about your leadership style. You know, you, you, you're obviously managing uh, technologists, uh, different levels of skill set, different aspects of the tech stack. Um, you know, you're also managing up, you're managing sideways with uh, colleagues. W what is your management style? So, I, I mean, one of the things that I, and I think you saw this when I was at Steve Madden, but empathy, right? Like, I really care about the people who work on my team. Um, I want them to be successful. I'm not as concerned about them being happy because I don't think I can make anyone happy, but I am concerned about creating an environment where they can choose to be happy. So I care about their families. I care about them as people. I care about their careers. I want to know, I want to know where they're trying to go and what they really want to be. If they want to write software for 40 years or if they want to go into management, 
I want to help them be the best versions of whomever they desire to be. And that's really where my focus. So if you're talking about managing within my team as a people leader, that's what I'm focused on. It's like, how do I grow these people to be the best of whatever it is that they're trying to be? And I've been surprised that some people, they are software engineers now, but they want to be product managers or they want to be project managers or other kind. They want to try something new. And so being the kind of manager that I am, I have been able to help them sort of like move into these different areas um, and have these different experiences. As far as managing up, it's really about communication. Um, I see myself as an extension of my people leader. So my goal is to make them look good. I mean, I know that sounds weird, but I, I, my goal is to make them look good, but to also help take some of the burden off of their day to day. Like, in other words, I want them to feel like they're not having to be concerned about me and what I'm doing and that I am going to do the thing that, I, that is in the best interest of the organization and the best interest of them and, and the goals that they've set. So that's really it. So I would just say empathy and just a deep amount of respect for the people that I am being led by. That's, that's great. Um, one of the, the many reasons that I think you and I got along so well was that, you know, I kind of always viewed you as a frustrated marketer. Um, you, you like marketing, don't you? I like anything. I like building software that delivers value to people, right? I am like every other child who with a Lego set wants to build the best thing in the world. But as a, um, as someone who's grown in my career, my focus really is what does the member or the end user, who, the people who are going to use this software, what is the experience that they're going to have? And I realize that I'm not the person who gets to decide that. So I want to be as close to the people who do get to decide that. And, and most of the time, that's the marketing folks. <laughs> and, you know, also, I, I think we dealt with this, you know, together, this, and you hear a lot about it in, in uh, e-commerce and digital commerce, you know, that shiny new object. I mean, there's not a day that goes by that there's not somebody that's calling me about um, their technology. How do we implement it? Why should we implement it in the site? Evaluate it. And you think, wow, you know, we really want to get it. Everybody talks about the fact, well, it's only two lines of code. In fact, it takes uh, lots of time to implement and think through and how things, you know, work through with other uh, feature and function that you have on a, on a commercial site. What kind of counsel do you give to the marketers about these shiny new objects that present themselves all the time? So my, my advice has evolved over the years. Most of the time, pre, prior, I used to hate people calling the marketers. Like it, it drove me absolutely insane. It took up too much of my time to have to talk about this next new hot thing. And the difference is I sort of saw it as my responsibility to try to stay up on the trend. So by the time you would call me, I would already know what it is that you were talking about. So I would love for marketers to put on blinders. But again, like I said earlier, I learned about marketers and marketing when I worked for an advertising agency. One thing I am certain about marketers and salespeople, they will market anything and sell anything in any way that will get someone to buy. That doesn't, that's not a statement about integrity or not, but it's about meeting people where they are. And I have realized that from a technological standpoint, you have to be flexible to be able to address marketing needs. So if the marketers come knocking on the door and say, hey, 
I learned that I can learn how I can retarget people with this tool. How quickly can we integrate this into the site so that we can start retargeting these customers? Because there's going to be X percentage points to the ROI to our revenues this year. Then I have to be prepared to listen, talk through it. But I would prefer if marketers wouldn't take these calls from these people, or we could take them together so we can sort of like have a yin and a yang to it. But um, I think ultimately, I while I want marketers to have blinders, I want marketers to be inspired by what's out in the space. And I want to be seen as a partner that's going to help them to accomplish whatever they feel most excited about. So your role today is at uh, uh, WW. So talk a little bit about that. The company is a very strong company going through, um, you know, some branding transition here over the last couple of years, but you know, a, a nutritional and a, and a health business, I suppose. Um, is that how you guys position the business today? Yeah, we, we describe ourselves as a technology experience company with a human centric overlay, right? So that's it. That's the focus. Like we are, we are a technology experience company, but we're also thinking about people, right? So it, everything comes back to how we service our members. And I just really love that. And I love that because it really truly is what every single person that I have met in my time here believes that we are, our focus is to help people on their journey towards wellness. Right. And, and so from a, a commerce perspective, um, I, customers can go to the website and they can sign up for, for uh, sessions and, and actually buy product too. Yeah, so they, you know, we have um, our digital on uh, digital product only, which is which gives you access to our mobile app. We also have a digital plus in person or digital plus studio uh, as well, and then we also obviously have our e commerce experience where you can buy um, WW product and and those kind of things. So yeah, absolutely. I guess as you you came there, um, much like we talked about, you know, your experience going from Gucci to Madden, um, how was it different for you going from a Madden to uh, a Weight Watchers? I started two weeks after our CEO, Mindy Grossman, started. And I felt like I stepped into a Rapids um, as soon as I hit. Because a lot of times when you start a new job, you have that period of time where everybody's trying to figure out, well, we hired this person. Now we got to get them doing what they need to do. I didn't get that time. Right? Um, I got hired and the ship was already moving. But I will tell you that the number one thing that stood out for me at WW, as opposed to every other company I've ever been in, was how they helped me to grow as a man, as a people leader and the focus on people. Like, it kind of makes sense because it's the business we're in. We, we have this whole human-centric overlay. But internally, we also are human-centric, and we focus on that. So for me, the technology part was already, I felt extremely proficient and confident in the technology. I felt that I deeply cared about people. But I think my experience at WW so far has been how to take caring about people deeply and turning that into action that actually benefits the people you care about. And so that's been the major difference um, between the companies. Technology doesn't always work right the first time, it seems. You know, we, we may plot something out, you tell me it goes live, um, and then, you know, perhaps we have some, some issues no matter how much we might QA it. How do you deal with mistakes? 
Um, what I've learned is that if I trust the people that are on my team, then we develop a no blame culture. So what that means is we create room for people to say, oops, I shouldn't have, I, that was a mistake. I probably shouldn't have done that and give them the opportunity to fix it or to help them to fix it. But with the expectation that they're competent, capable, and that we're going to work together to resolve whatever issues that are coming up. And I don't tend to, I, well, I don't yell and I don't berate and I don't belittle, not privately or, or publicly. I, but I do hold people accountable for the mistakes that they make with the expectation that they, under, that they can figure out what they, mistake they made and then they, they can actually correct them. And then I'm also there with them to help them to correct it. But basically, the way I deal with mistakes is to make sure that the people who make the mistakes understand it was just a mistake and that we can get past this and we can work through this and that is going to be okay. Um, that's the focus. That's how I deal with mistakes because they're going to happen. We're going to deploy something that brings the site down. We're going to deploy something that turns off some legacy system that no one remembered. We're going to make mistakes because when you care about people and you're trying to do the best you can to meet people's needs, you're just going to make mistakes along the way because that's just the nature of technology. I mean, it's just how it works. Yep. Well, folks, I'll tell you that, uh, you know, that's not just Rodney talking about himself in, in the most positive way. Uh, it's absolutely the truth. Uh, that's the way he uh, operated uh, as my technology partner. Um, and, uh, you know, he just always has a smile on his face and uh, everything is very positive uh, about him. So uh, I've always been very happy that uh, my career uh, has included uh, Rodney. Um, so Rodney, we're, we're getting down to the end of our show here. I do this two minute drill, um, kind of keeping with the marketing playbook theme, a little bit football. Um, you ready for some questions? Go for it. All right. Just short and sweet. A brand that you admire or that inspires you? You know, this was a tough one um, because I think uh, during this whole COVID thing, and I'll make this quick, during this whole COVID thing, it's been a challenge because you know, my space is technology, e-commerce, commerce, any kind of online experience is part of my experience. And so I see all the holes in these e-commerce sites and it's driving me absolutely insane. And so I think one thing that COVID has done for me is shown me the number of brands that I'm no longer a fan of. So, but there is one, there's a person and um, her name is Angela Yu. She's based in the UK and she runs, she has this um, training program called uh, the Complete iOS Development Bootcamp. I think this is probably one of the best um, educational um, tools that I've used or seen in a really, really long time. So I would say that the brand that she's building around um, technology education um, and skills development is probably something I really admire. Gee, somehow that doesn't surprise me that that's what you chose. Okay. Favorite app on your phone? Oh, man. Uh, Probably something you built, right? No, I am building something, but I, I'm giving myself a year to build it. I'm building a game and I'm basically giving myself a year to like have something in the app store. So talk to me October of next year. But um, I think I, there's a game called Arch Hero on my phone that when I just need some brain, some time, some downtime, I just open that up and, and play that. The last website other than Amazon that you shopped from? 
funny enough, I mean, this is not that exciting, but Target. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Something that you're not good at, but that you wish that you were. I'm bad at so many things that are not germane to my um, professional career. So, I, I mean, I'm terrible at singing, but I never wanted to be good at that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, you're killing me. Right. Um, but I guess, you know, like, um, I, uh, I guess I would say... Um, don't hurt yourself, Rodney. Don't well, hurt I would yourself. Say probably, I would say playing an instrument, maybe a guitar or a piano. Okay. A charitable organization that you're passionate about. Right. Um, I don't have one to name, but I can tell you the business that the charitable organization would be in. And that is um, any kind of food pantry or food distribution charitable organization. Um, and the number one reason is because when you give to those organizations, the money really does go towards the actual purpose of the place, which is purchasing food to give to people. And when I was younger, there were times where we lined up at churches um, on the weekends to get food to supplement the shortages that we had. Um, and so I really value those organizations because they were a major part. They were a, a memorable part of my childhood and, and how I got to where I am. If you had one superpower, what would it be? My superpower would be the ability to have everyone else's superpower just by looking at them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Other than family, this is the last one. Other than family, what's your most prized possession? Right. I, because of my, my upbringing, my childhood, and all of the things, you know, I never got attached to anything. Um, but so I would say like right now, like the thing that comes to mind for me is my marriage. Not that you can possess a marriage, but it is the thing that is most valuable to me right now. Oh, that's great. You have a, uh, a wonderful wife, a very lucky wife. You're a lucky guy. Um, and uh, you're just one of the nicest guys I've ever worked with. So I'm glad that we could tell your story or you could tell your story to uh, the listeners of the Marketing Playbook. Thanks for everything, Rodney. Um, always great to catch up with you, and I wish you and your family uh, very good success in the future. All the best. To, thank you, Mark, and all the best to you. I've loved your podcast. I've definitely listened to about four episodes um, much prior to today, not just because of this. And you've been doing a really great job. I, I really appreciate just how well it's going. All right. Well, thanks very much. Um, I'll talk to you soon. Take care. That's it. Today's game ball goes to Rodney Woodruff for coming on the Marketing Playbook. To me, today's three game-winning marketing plays were as follows. Number one, adopt a no-blame culture. We heard Rodney speak about how mistakes are going to happen, especially with respect to technology. Give people room to make some mistakes and let them know that you have their back and will work with them to fix any mistakes they make and have it to be a learning experience. Number two, one of the many challenges facing technologists and marketers is whether to build or buy new feature and function. A good rule of thumb is for those problems that seem to have been solved already, select an off-the-shelf solution. For those things that can offer your business a competitive advantage, consider building to your requirements. And number three, there is a solution to almost every problem. That's a Rodney quote, and one that we often lose sight of in our businesses. Be pragmatic and reasonable. Leverage the team that you have put together and trust their capabilities. Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. 
If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Details Interact and learn more at DetailsInteractive.com. Until next time, the devil is in the details. Yeah.